Hi and welcome to the December edition of the EVJ podcast, our final podcast of 2016. The next one will be out in February. I'm your host Rhiannon Morgan and today I'll be joined by Dr Chris Sanchez chatting about neonatal encephalopathy and Dr Ben Sykes discussing omeprazole. Chris Sanchez is an Associate Professor of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Florida with a keen interest in the critical care of equine neonates. Chris will be discussing her paper titled Factors Associated with Outcome in 94 Hospitalised Foals Diagnosed with Neonatal Encephalopathy. This can currently be found in the early view section of the EVJ website. Hi Chris, welcome back and thanks for returning to discuss another of your papers published in EVJ. Um, For those of you who haven't yet listened to our back catalogue, Chris took part in the April 2015 podcast and talked about her paper on re-evaluating the sepsis score in equine neonates. Now today we're sticking with the neonatal theme and discussing neonatal encephalopathy. So Chris, could you give us an overview of this condition, um, what predisposes foals to encephalopathy and how it manifests? Sure. Uh, Thanks so much for having me back. I'm happy to uh, do another podcast. Uh, Neonatal encephalopathy is... uh, the most common non-infectious condition of foals and uh, one of the is known by a lot of pseudonyms one of them uh, dummy foals and is a really pretty common condition for anyone that's used to dealing with equine neonates it's a interesting disease in that we don't always know exactly what causes it, it can be certainly associated with um, Difficult birth or dystocia is one of the the common findings in in some foals, abnormal placenta as well. And sometimes we just don't really totally understand why a foal has this syndrome. There are certainly in some of the severely affected foals, uh, one of the potential theories is a combination of hypoxia and ischemia or lack of blood flow to the brain in, in these foals. And that certainly can be seen in some of the ones that have had a difficult birth, you know, or abnormal placenta, things like that. But there, the other possibilities are abnormal alteration of um, neurosteroids that can cause the foal to not, um, not transition from the fetal period where the and, uh, essentially neurosteroids allow the foal to be um, quite quiet in utero. So they're not... Um, Kind of moving around a lot within the mare's uterus to once they're born, the, the neurosteroid um, profile changes such that the somnolence associated with um, the fetal foal is changed to allow the alertness associated with the neonatal foal. And so the alteration of, of neurosteroids is another um, new proposed etiology associated with this condition and most of that work's been done by um, Monica Alamount and and John Madigan out at uh, University of California Davis. Okay, so what were you aiming to look at in particular in this paper, and what did you hypothesize? Um, so what we were looking for is interestingly with this syndrome, although it's quite common, there's actually very little information in the published literature describing the condition and what makes a difference in which foals survive and which foals don't. And so the goal of our paper was to um, retrospectively evaluate foals we had seen at the large animal hospital at University of Florida and um, 
try and go back and, and use some statistical analysis to figure out what, what was associated with the foals that survive and, and the foals that didn't, and also to get a, a better handle on the clinical picture in these foals and, and how well they did. So, so yeah, could you give us an overview of your study design, your inclusion sure. criteria and, and things like that? Absolutely. And so we looked at uh, foals that were admitted to the um, Hoffman Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at, at University of Florida that were less than or equal to 14 days of age at the time of admission. And this full went, this study went from January of 1996 through um, the end of the foaling season in 2007. And um, we used a clinical diagnosis of neonatal encephalopathy um, or any of its um, synonyms and then excluded any foal that had meningitis or any congenital neurologic abnormalities that would have um, been associated with suspected uh, clinical signs. And then, so those that was the inclusion criteria. And then we went through each foal's record and, and categorized a lot of the clinical signs, historical information, laboratory data. And then we also went through and looked at treatments both specific drugs and other supportive care mechanisms, how much they got, and um, duration of treatment as well. And so we looked at not only what um, what treatments the foals received, but also how long each treatment was administered to each foal. And then obviously we looked at survival and then went through and, and categorized the foals into the survivors and um, the non-survivors and, what, and then went back and looked at things that were associated with each. And um, one of the things on the... The non-surviving foals, the majority of the foals were euthanized, but based upon the records, we could go back and, and look to see that none of the foals that we included in the study were euthanized due to financial concerns. So um, it seemed as though the non-survivors were um, non-survivors due to lack of progression of, of disease versus uh, financial constraints. Okay. So out of 94 foals, 75 survived and 19 died. And as you said, 15 of these were euthanized. So were those that died suffering also from concomitant problems? And what was found on postmortem? Okay. And so um, we had necropsy evaluation of um, 10 of the, or of 11 foals. And uh, most of those, excuse me, for 17 foals. And of those 17, 11 were um, had signs of pneumonia and or disseminated sepsis. So that seemed to... Um, go along with, you know, the fact that the multiple concomitant diseases contributes to the demise of these foals. So um, 11 of the of the 17 for which we had necropsy evaluation had some form of disseminated sepsis. And then 10 of, um, of 11 foals that had uh, histological evidence of um, necrosis or degeneration within the central nervous system that was consistent with ischemia. And so that kind of goes along with the, the concept that the the more severely affected foals have evidence of lack of oxygen and or blood flow to the central nervous system. And that is also uh, goes along with when, when this problem is seen in human infants um, of true hypoxia and ischemia, the prognosis is not as good as what we see in the foals, which is, you know, really pretty promising, even at a, you know, referral institution, having a, you know, 80% survival for, for something like this is, is pretty reasonable. So what did you find were, <clears throat> sorry, the most frequently identified clinical signs associated with um, encephalopathy? 
So the most common clinical signs, and, and this goes along with what um, has been reported in the literature as well, is abnormal utter seeking or, or difficulty suckling, um, inability to stand. Uh, those are by far the most common ones. And then some other clinical signs that were seen frequently but less commonly than those were um, abnormal gastrointestinal motility, abnormal consciousness, and um, seizure activity. And what fact factors were significantly associated with the non-survivors? Um, the factors that came through in the final multivariable models, though, so after accounting for um, all of the other factors, were those that um, therapy-wise had um, mechanical ventilation, resp- uh, respiratory stimulants, and um, vasopressors or um, inotropes. And so from a therapy standpoint, those are the only things that made a difference. None of the other therapies, and including some common ones like DMSO or, or magnesium sulfate, none of those had an effect on um, survival. The, and then the other things as far as non-drug, non-treatment associated were the number of concurrent diseases. And then um, interestingly from on lab work, uh, calcium and, and alkaline phosphatase were the other two things that had, uh, that came through, you know, came through in the multivariable model. Absolutely. So there was a positive correlation between calcium levels and non-survivors. So what do you think was the causative link between these? <laughs> That's a great question um, for which I don't have a, a great answer. And it's, um, it's, it's, th- that one's really interesting. And I am, um, and, and calcium is held through in some other studies in sepsis, but usually it's low calcium that's associated with non-survival versus high calcium. And so um, there's a lot about calcium regulation in the neonatal fold that we don't truly understand. And in this study, because this was a clinical a retrospective clinical study, we didn't really have any other measures of um, calcium metabolism, um, you know, looking at like uh, dihydroxy uh, vitamin D3 or, or any of those um, sorts of variables or uh, parathyroid hormone. We didn't measure any of those things. So it's tough to say why calcium was high versus the fact that it was. And so whether it was associated with ischemia and cell death versus calcium homeostasis, it's tough to say. Um, mm-hmm. So I would, I would really chalk that up to interesting, but probably not particularly clinically relevant. Okay. And again, vasopressors and inotropes were strongly correlated with non-survival. So could you give us a, a reason behind this? Sure. I think, I think that one's substantially easier to understand because I think it goes through the sicker foals and the ones that had other um, concurrent diseases were much more likely to have to be hypotensive the most common cause of that being septic shock and so i think the sicker the fold the more likely they are to be hypotensive and so i think that um the use of vasopressors and inotropes is is really just um a way to say that those folds were predominantly hypotensive mm-hmm. versus the fact that those vasopressors and, and or inotropes contributed to survival okay or non-survival or and the same thing for, um, you know, use of mechanical ventilation that didn't hold through in the final model. But, um, you know, that the folds that are in respiratory failure obviously are sicker and more likely to, to be non-survivors so, versus the mechanical ventilation itself. So you discussed also in the paper a lack of definitive antimortem tests. 
tests used in the study um, <clears throat> to diagnose neonatal encephalopathy. So what kind of tests are available? None, really. <laughs> so, and, um, so in general, it's really just a, a, a clinical diagnosis and exclusion of other factors. And so I think that in, you know, in the, in the majority of equine practices worldwide, this is a diagnosis of clinical signs of abnormal udder seeking, abnormal behavior, um, plus or minus other signs of, of udder seeking. I think that potentially if we, um, you know, if, if the, the folks at Davis get farther down the line and we have an ability to, to clinically evaluate neurosteroids more readily, that might play a role in diagnosis. But I think that, after, you know, this is, it's one of the syndromes that I think um, clinical signs alone, at least for now, tend to be the hallmark of, um, of the disease, pro you know, of the syndrome. So I was, I was surprised to read that uh, maternal factors such as dystochia or abnormal placentation were not strongly associated with non-survival. Could you give us a reasoning behind this? Um, I was really surprised by that too, actually. And I think that that's what, you know, that's the fun of doing research is we all have questions that we want to know the answer to. And sometimes we prove ourselves right. And sometimes we prove ourselves wrong. And um, I was actually really surprised um, by that, um, by that finding. And, um, you know, the three most common maternal factors were, you know, cesarean section, dystocia, and um, abnormal placenta. And we, in this particular study, we didn't have many foals that um, had been born to mares with C-section. So that was only two foals in, in the whole study, and one lived, one died. Whereas um, almost uh, almost 30% of the survivors were foals that had been born for, you know, from dystocia and 13% of the non-survivors and um, abnormal placenta was really common about 50% of the non-survivors and, and a little over 30% of the, the survivors had um, mares with abnormal placenta. So, you know, those two things were common enough that it should have, have shown through were that really associated and, and whether that was a factor of population, I think it is probably so is perhaps the dissociates, um, whether it was that they weren't that bad, they get, they were referred quickly. Um, it, it, it's tough to say for me why that that didn't hold through as far as, you know, associated with survival. So, um, and, you know, it, it was just, it was pretty interesting. And so mm. I am, um, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for you. Okay. <laughs> and and I would be interested to see if we, um, if we see similar at, at other, you know, other geographic locations or, Absolutely. or I, I think it would be really interesting to see if that's just an anomaly of this population or if it really, um, if it really doesn't make a difference. So ultimately, has this changed the way you practice and changed the advice you give clients with foals with this condition? Um, you know, I think going back to my statement that, you know, sometimes we prove ourselves right and sometimes we, we prove ourselves wrong. I think one of my long held beliefs, or at least recently long, you know, relatively long beliefs is that direct, any form of directed therapy for, for these fools doesn't really make that much difference. I think in the, you know, in the years I've been practicing, we used to give a lot of different drugs. You know, I used, I've, I've given everything in, that we talked about, so DMSO, mannitol, 
magnesium, all sorts of, you know, vitamin E, all sorts of things over the years. And now I actually don't give any of those. Um, and I, I think that the, the data in this study show that, you know, really good, strong, supportive care and paying attention to sepsis and other, um, other problems the foals might have is by far the most important thing in keeping a, you know, keeping these foals healthy and getting them to survive. And the rest of the directed therapy doesn't really seem to make that much of a difference. And so I would say that that's, for me, that's one of the things I was, um, that was good to, you know, to show that my clinical impression so far at least was accurate in this population. Again, I don't know if that'll hold through in other populations. So I guess for me, that's one of the most important things. And also to really pay attention to, you know, blood pressure, respiratory rate, respiratory function, because when those things go badly, that's, you know, that is one of the indicators that those foals are more likely to be non-survivors and to make sure that in communication with owners, um, everyone's aware that, um, you know, that's a much more critical foal and, and things might not go as well. Well, Chris, thanks very much for returning. Um, it's great to have you back on. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. No problem. Ben Sykes is a national equine key account manager for BOVA in Australia and also involved in new product and formulation development for BOVA and a sister company, Luoda Pharmaceuticals. He's joined us to discuss his paper titled The Effects of Dose and Diet on the Pharmacodynamics of Omeprazole in the Horse. This study was funded by the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation. Hi Ben, thanks for joining us from Coffs Harbour today. Um, we're discussing the combination of the dose of omeprazole and the type of diet the horse receives and how this will affect the ability of omeprazole to increase the stomach pH. So can you tell us a little bit about the durations that omeprazole have historically been able to affect the pH of stomach acid over say a 24 hour period and how does this affect ulcers in both the squamous and glandular regions of the stomach? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so the early research into the horse suggested that omeprazole had a very prolonged effect, um, even at relatively low doses, down as low as 1.4 milligram per kilogram for some enteric-coated omeprazole. They were getting out to 24 hours of acid suppression, and that was consistent with the thoughts at the time that there was irreversible binding and you needed de novo synthesis of the ATPA's pumps to get resumption of acid production. What we know now is certainly that um, idea that there's irreversible binding has been drawn into question and the, the basis for that is if we look in other species, we have um, a much more rapid reconstitution of acid production than we would of production of new proton pumps. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that's occurring, but affect the idea that the ATPA's pump is irreversibly inhibited by proton pump inhibitors is kind of going, going out the window, and we're now looking at a, a reversible process. And so that fits in somewhat with what some further studies found. So Merritt did a study in 2003, and he found that even at four milligram per kilogram uh, of gastrograd, he was only getting approximately 12 hours of acid suppression down in the ventral stomach. And um, this was really quite a bit of a surprise, but it slipped somewhat under the radar because at that time, no one was particularly sort of fussed about that because we were seeing good squamous healing rates and we weren't quite talking about glandular disease yet um, as its own entity. Um, the differences for between... Uh, the early findings with relatively low doses and very high efficacy and durations of effect and Merritt's work were probably related to methodology. The earlier studies used gastric cannula horses. They fasted the horses overnight, or sorry, at least in, in um, some time for collection to occur. 
and that potentially would affect the absorption of the omeprazole if the horses were fasted at the time of omeprazole. It would also potentially affect the stimulus for um, acid production to occur. So we know that horses are continuous acid secretors, but there's definitely a prandial component to how they secrete acid as well. So we've got a mixture of both going on. And when you fast horses, it's quite likely that you remove a lot of the stimulus for acid production. And that potentially inadvertently flatters the duration of efficacy of omeprazole in those conditions. Al Merritt's stuff um, looked at horses with um, gastric cannulas, but he had retrograde-fitted pH probes and had them eating um, free-choice hay diets under much more normal conditions, and, he, and, and that's likely a re- reason why he found differences because um, of differences in stimulus for acid production and stuff like that, and also differences in the role of stratification in the stomach of acid. What does that mean for um, healing of, of squamous and, gl- and glandular lesions? Um, we don't really know in the horse. Uh, We know in other species, we know that you should be above a pH of four for approximately two-thirds of the day uh, for squamous healing to occur, and we know you should be above three for approximately two-thirds of the day for glandular to occur, maybe even 75% of the day. We don't know what those benchmarks are in the horse, and it probably depends on the horse where you measure uh, intragastric pH. So obviously, if you're worried about squamous healing, um, measuring at the level of the squamous mucosa is the best proxy for that. If you're worried about glandular healing, then measuring at the level of the glandular mucosa is the best proxy for uh, determining duration of acid suppression required for glandular healing. Okay, so what were you specifically interested in in this study and what were your hypotheses? So we've done some work leading into um, to my PhD, into this study in particular, looking at the potential differences in dose. And we'd looked at you know clinical treatment of patients and shown that um, there wasn't a difference um, necessarily between one and four milligram per kilogram, um, but we still felt that dose may well play a role um, based on the overall body of the literature. So we certainly wanted to investigate the role of dose. And then based on some of the, the, the things I talked about just previously and also looking back into some of the original literature and some pharmacokinetic work that we'd done that suggested, although we couldn't show it statistically significantly, but suggested that diet does potentially have a significant or a, a, a large impact on the absorption of omeprazole, we suggested that, or we, we hypothesized that both diet and dose would affect the um, duration of acid suppression, the magnitude and duration of acid suppression achieved uh, with omeprazole administration. So how did you set this study up? Could you talk us through the study design? So we had six thoroughbred X-race horses um, that had conditioned to basically being um, uh, fat ponies. And um, they have percutaneous gastronomy tubes inserted into their stomachs. And these percutaneous gastronomy tubes allow us to retrofit a pH probe uh, back up through them from the outside in and allow us to get measurement point at two locations in the very ventral part of the stomach. So the, the peg tubes are sitting approximately sort of five centimetres from the very most ventral part of the, the body of the stomach. And we can get a measurement point, uh, which I refer to as measurement location one, um, which is approximately 10 to 20 mils away from the glandular mucosa. And a second measurement point, five centimetres away, uh, which is in the horse that's eating ad limits and hay, presumably deep within the ingester. In the horse that's fasting or on a high roughage, low grain diet, presumably mixed up somewhat um, into a, you know, the feed ingester and all the stomach contents at any given time. We then um, could look at those horses over 24-hour periods. So we would take a uh, day zero was a baseline where we just recorded their baseline pH where typically for the hay diet, they had virtually no time where they would increase their acid production and their pH set around one to two virtually constantly. 
versus the high grain low fiber diet where after each meal they'd have a transient one to two maybe three hour increase in intragastric ph purely associated with diet so we did a um a day zero the two doses we looked at were one and four milligram per kilogram the traditional um prevention and treatment doses and the two diets we looked at were ad libitum hay and a proxy for a high high grain low fiber diet or a proxy for a racehorse diet which was five kilograms of hay and five kilograms of grain divided into two meals fed twice a day. After day zero's baseline, we then administered a meprazole once a day for five days and measured the pH over a 23-hour period each of those days, which allowed us to get a couple of outputs. The primary output that we used was percent time above four. This is the benchmark used for healing in humans and other species for squamous disease. In an ideal world, we would have got percent time above three as well, because that's the benchmark potentially for glandular healing. Although I think until we know a little bit more, it's probably quite reasonable to use percent time above four um, as as the marker, because it's a little bit more rigorous. So, you know, if we can hit that, then obviously we're above three as well. We also looked at median intragastric pH uh, as a proxy for uh, percent time above three or just as another marker, but that tended to track percent time above four. Once we'd looked at them over a five-day period, we were then, to, we were then able to um, compare the differences between the two doses and the two diets and their interactions. Okay, so what did you find with regards to Dyson diet? So we found in the high-grain, low-fibre diet, um, and it's probably worth mentioning specifically that the omeprazole was administered two hours prior to the morning feeding. So the omeprazole was given at 8 o'clock. They were fed at 10 o'clock and again at 6 p.m. And most of those horses that had consumed their feed by 10 o'clock that night, effectively giving them a fast of approximately 10 hours overnight from, the, from when they finished their feed. So we found that in, the, in that diet, there was an effective dose with four milligram per kilogram being more effective um, on average and the, virtually all horses responding well to four milligram per kilogram. We did, however, find that at one milligram per kilogram, some of the individual horses responded very well with near complete acid suppression, while there, we started to see a much greater range of inter-individual variability. And some of the horses at one milligram per kilogram were below the therapeutic threshold. The overall effect by day five was approximately 60%, which sits right on that limit of therapeutic um, threshold in other species um, and fits with some of the earlier work that we've done clinically under similar conditions where we were getting good clinical healing at one milligram per kilogram although there are definitely a percentage of horses that are non-responders. And so um, the effect of increasing dose in that diet is not necessarily that you increase the magnitude of acid suppression in all individuals, but you potentially increase the magnitude of acid suppression in individuals that are less responsive to a omeprazole. But if you're a good responder, you can get just as good a response at one milligram per kilogram than you can at four milligram per kilogram. When we looked at the hay diet, there was no effective dose. It was quite interesting. One milligram per kilogram and four milligram per kilogram were equally effective. And in fact, both were really not as effective as uh, previous reports. So the overall effect by day five was approximately 40% acid suppression. And what we actually saw was a very clear divergence in individual horses. So we had some individual horses that responded very well, uh, especially at four milligram per kilogram. But even at one milligram per kilogram, we had individual horses that responded quite well and were above those therapeutic thresholds using other species. And then we had other horses, three horses um, in each for each dose that basically showed minimal of any acid suppressive response over a five-day period. So uh, it was quite striking that in the, in the non-responder horses, even by day five, we were effectively seeing no significant acid suppression from baseline, um, despite a four milligram per kilogram omeprazole dose. And that further highlighted the inter-individual, uh, the role of the individual in response to treatment 
rather than sort of a blanket response across the board. So how did these results compare and contrast with previous studies? So the results that we saw in the high-grain, low-fibre diet would be Certainly the four milligram per kilogram results would be consistent with sort of the early work published with, you know, very profound acid suppression and long duration acid suppression. Uh, The one milligram per kilogram stuff sort of added to that, that we do see individual animals that will respond very, very well at those doses as well. And that's probably consistent with the earliest work done on omeprazole um, under those sort of conditions that maybe potentially mimic that high grain, low fiber diet where uh, they're not continually eating, they're not continually getting that stimulus for acid production. However, the hay findings were quite different from common belief of omeprazole's efficacy. Um, and even compared to our merits stuff in 2003, we're even a little bit inferior to our merits previous stuff. So in some ways, they lined up, the high-grain, low-fiber lined up with the original cannulation model and the hay diet lined up with our merits work. But certainly, I think in terms of our clinical understanding of uh, the use of omeprazole, they probably really emphasize the need or, or point out the need to think about the role of diet, not just in terms of prevention and using diet um, as a management tool to prevent squamous ulceration, uh, particularly ad limitum roughage, but to take a step back and think, well, while we're treating this horse, we have to think about the interaction between diet and our administration of omeprazole. And somewhat counterintuitively, it may be that, or the, the research supports the idea that the feeding of an ad libitum diet, ad libitum hay diet during the treatment phase may actually be counterproductive to the therapeutic response that we expect in terms of acid suppression when we administer omeprazole, at least in a subset of population. Um, because as I said, we did see some horses continue to respond well, but we saw some so minimal, if any, response despite the therapeutic dose. So as far as I understand, these horses weren't exercised in the study. Um, how do you think exercise will further affect your findings um, and do you think this therefore is a true representative study for horses in practice? So correct, the horses were stable, they weren't exercising, they um, just basically were in a stall and free to do move about the stall at their own thing. And there's definitely a role of, of exercise in terms of squamous pathology. Um, in terms of glandular pathology, I don't think we have you know a lot of clear data to say one way or the other at this stage. In terms of squamous pathology, I think we well recognise that there's an interaction between exercise itself in terms of uh, changing the position and, and, and the stratification of acid within the stomach and diet in terms of the role of particularly, particularly hay in maintaining stratification of hay in the stomach. So in terms of the pathogenesis and the role of exercise and diets and the interaction of the two, I think they're very critical when we think about particularly squamous disease. And as I said, I think there's a lot we don't know about glandular disease yet. In terms of interpreting the response to these horses and the response to omeprazole therapy, I'm not sure that not having these horses exercised really is potentially a a downside um, of the study. I think that in the high grain, low fiber diet where we're seeing um, levels of acid suppression that would be global, um, the high levels of acid suppression would be consistent with squamous and potentially glandular healing if we were to, to be able to sustain those. In terms of the glandular mucosa and glandular healing, um, I think that in the hay diet, that stratification is important. It may be that because our model had the measurement at the very, very ventral part of the stomach, that it's sort of the most rigorous way of assessing acid suppression and it may be that that magic four ph does change um, even though we weren't able to measure it 
at the very ventral part of the stomach, uh, or certainly in the horses that showed you a modest response where they may get 20% acid, you know, 20% percent time above four. It may be that at the level of the Margo Epicatus that that has a different change. And to, to, to understand that further, we'd need to be measuring these horses at the level of the Margo, Margo Epicatus under similar conditions. But I think overall, if we think about in those horses and that population consuming high roughage diets, we mostly worry about um, glandular disease. Uh, I don't think that the exercise plays a major role in the interpretation of the study overall. Okay, so what would your um, ultimate take-home message for practitioners be? I think at the end of the day, feeding matters. And the idea that we have a singular dosing recommendation for all horse types and all management types is is probably inappropriate. We definitely see a wide range of inter-individual variability in, in the response to a metrazole. And I think we need to take that into consideration when we're treating horses with a metrazole. We need to take into consideration whether horses are fasting overnight in a high-performance, stable environment, or whether their horse is out on pasture or consuming ad libitum roughage. And adjust our therapeutic uh, intervention accordingly. Certainly, particularly in the non-responders, it's probably worth considering, and again, this is counterintuitive, but it's worth considering that if we have a horse that's failing to respond to a metrazole therapy and it's on ad libitum hay, then considering whether the hay, in fact, may be blocking the effect of the metrazole and changing the diet accordingly is something that needs to, you know, needs to be considered on a case-by-case basis. And so in those cases, where possible, I think, during the therapeutic phase, for horses that are stabled overnight, giving them their omeprazole first thing in the morning, waiting an hour, feeding them, um, feeding them their, their grain meal and ad libitum roughage throughout the day. And that feeding is really important. It's really important that they get fed while the omeprazole is in the system so the pumps can turn on because they need to turn, off to turn on to be turned off. And then feeding them ad libitum roughage during the day, feed them their evening meal, but at their evening meal, give them only enough hay to last them a couple of hours so that by 10 o'clock or midnight, they're effectively going to fast through to the next morning and have a relatively empty or an empty stomach, at which point you administer the omeprazole again and repeat the cycle. And I think in terms of omeprazole efficacy, that's going to be um, the best way to maximize the potential outcome. In the racehorse population, um, I think the results of the study suggest that we can probably use lower doses in many individuals and expect a comparable therapeutic response. Okay, Ben, thank you very much for your time today um, and thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and see you in 2017.